0: Be seated. Um, I just like still calling it Good Friday. I don't think we can almost use those two words enough. It is Good Friday. It is amen, right? I mean, because it's Good Friday because God sent his son Jesus. It's Good Friday because we know who Jesus is too, right? Like it's not just someone came, but the son of God came. It's Good Friday because we know Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And it's Good Friday because we know what happens on Sunday. The tomb is empty It is open. The stone has been rolled away. Jesus is risen. Jesus is victorious. Jesus conquered sin, death, and Satan. And so it is a good, good Friday. Um, And so tonight, I I just want us to to look and and to, to reflect on the cross. And I want to begin by just reminding us why it was so necessary for the cross. I think sometimes we ask the question did Jesus have to come and die? And we kind of wonder, was there another way? Could there have been another way? Um, and I think sometimes we think of sin kind of like the common cold. It's something we catch. It's something outside of us that attaches to us. But if we we're to take some medicine, if, if we take whatever, whatever it is that the doctor prescribes, then we get better. Or to change analogies, maybe we, we think of sin like a rope and it's just wrapped around us, and it's tied up several times, and it's just got some really big knots in it, and I just need someone else to help me undo the knots so I can be free. But that's not how the Bible talks about sin. It's not how the Bible talks about sin at all. The Bible says that that we are sinful, that our very hearts are full of sin. In fact, uh, Paul, in Ephesians 2, 1, he'll say that we are dead Our trespasses. And so, trespasses is just kind of another word for sin. And what his point is his point is that we are born as spiritually dead, we have no spiritual life within us. So, what does that mean? What does that actually look like? So Paul, in another book, Romans 8, he'll actually kind of unpack that more. He'll say in Romans 8, verse 7, he says, for the mind that is set on the flesh, so he's talking about the natural man, the man who does not believe in Jesus, just the way that we're born, the natural man is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So according to God's word, every person who's, who's born into this world comes spiritually dead, which means we're born rejecting God. We're born worshiping and honoring anything other than God. The sin that's within us wants to dethrone God and place ourselves on his throne. And so tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to be in Matthew 26. And so if you want to follow along, I encourage you, uh, if you brought a Bible, if you Probably all have like a million like digital Bibles on your phone or something. We also have Bibles in the chairs. We're going to be in Matthew 26. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at three pictures. Now picture one and picture three are really going to give us a very a, a similar one. It's going to show us what it is that we need to be saved from. It's going to show us what it looks like to be born spiritually dead, to be hostile to God. But then we're going to look at... Uh, Picture number number two, and that's going to show us what it looks like to have a new saved heart. It's going to show us not only what we've been saved from, but to what we've been saved for. And what we're going to see tonight is that the cross saves us from our sin, that we would live a life of exuberant worship. And I love that word exuberant. We're going to use it a little bit more tonight. We'll define it a little bit more. But um, you can just practice saying exuberant to yourself because it's kind of a fun word. Um, So on Sunday mornings, we stand when we read, and so we're going to go ahead and ask you to stand as we read. We stand because it's God's word, and it's just a means of reminding ourselves that this comes inspired by God. And so we're going to read 16 verses, chapter 26, 1 through 16, and I just, as we go through here, I just want you to see these three pictures. There's three pictures, and you're going to see them as we go through. Verse 1, When Jesus had finished all these things, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast lest there be an uproar among the people. Picture two. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Picture number three. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray them. Let me pray. Father, Father, again, we come and we just, Lord, I pray that we're all excited to be here. I pray that we are so excited because we're just zeroing in on the cross. The very means in which you have saved us. Your son Jesus came willingly and joyfully. Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross so that we could be forgiven and enjoy everlasting life with you. And so, Lord, I pray, give us wisdom as we look at your word. Give us understanding as we look at your word. Fill us with awe. Fill us with wonder. May we better understand the cross. May we better understand our sins and the desperate need we have for your son Jesus to die for us. Lord, I just pray that you help us to see the beauty of the cross and may every single one of us respond in exuberant worship tonight. In your name, Jesus, amen. You may be seated. So we're going to just jump right in. We're going to start with picture one, which is verses one through five. We're looking at the religious elite. This is going to show us what we have been saved from. Now, the obvious point that Matthew has as we're looking at Caiaphas, and as we're looking at the elders, is that we're to see that they're scheming, that they're plotting to kill Jesus. Now, this is nothing new. The hatred of of the religious leaders has been growing. If you went back to like Matthew 9, you would see that Jesus heals a paralytic, and then he forgives him of his sins, and in response to that, the religious leaders are outraged that he would think he could forgive someone of his sins. And if you go to Matthew 12, we see that Jesus heals a man who has a withered hand, but the problem is he does it on the Sabbath. And so they're outraged. How dare he does this act of work on the Sabbath? But I think, apart from the actual death of Jesus, where we clearly see the heart of the Pharisees, of the religious leaders, is in John chapter 11. You don't have to turn there, but, but I encourage you to read it later. In John 11, Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Now, Jesus made sure he delayed in his going so that Lazarus would be dead for four days by the time he gets there. And he comes out in front of the tomb, and he says, Lazarus, come out. You can just imagine what everyone's thinking at the moment. Is he going to come? What's going to happen? And then he walks out. Whatever decay, whatever had been happening had been reversed, and he walks out. And this is now what the religious leaders say. This is what they say, John 11, verse 48. Just think about these words. If we let him go on like this. Everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and they'll take away both our place and our nation. Just think about those words. If we let him go on like this, I mean, could you imagine if we just let this guy keep raising people from the dead? And what if he just keeps healing people and making the lame to walk and the blind to see? I mean, this could be horrible for us. People will like him, they won't come to us. And so what we have here is we have literally the Son of God, the one who made everything. If you've been with us in Hebrews, created everything, sustains everything with his word, the exact image and radiance of the glory of God. He's now on earth in front of people, and they see him do these amazing, miraculous acts, and all they can do is say, how do we keep our power in position? Do you see how that illustrates? We are born spiritually dead hostile to God. That's picture one. And we go to picture three, which happens at the end in verses 14 to 16, and we come to Judas. And on these verses, we see someone who's very near to Jesus. In the first picture, we see those who are are kind of far from Jesus. They didn't walk with him, but Judas walked with him. He sat with him. He ate with him. He heard his teachings. He witnessed all that Jesus does. And so right after this exuberant act of worship of this woman coming and pouring oil, on Jesus' head, he goes, I, I I need to betray this guy. I need to sell him. I want out. You see, Judas is greedy. And in, and in John's account of this same story, where a woman comes and pours the oil on Jesus' head, we read that Ju- Judas in John 12:6 was in charge of the money bag and often helped himself to it. So he didn't really care about the poor. He didn't really care about how this could have been used. He just cares about himself. And so most likely, we don't know a lot about Judas, but most likely he began following Jesus because he thought Jesus was going to be his meal ticket to success. He began to hitch his cart up to Jesus and said, wherever he goes, I'm going to go. If he can raise people from the dead, if he can you know, heal the lame and make the blind see, this is going to be a powerful guy. He's going to be made king, and I want to be right next to him when he's king. That's probably somewhat of the mindset that he has. And then when he realizes that Jesus isn't actually going to deliver his dreams, he begins saying, I, I, I want out. I'll betray him. I should at least get something out of all the time that I've spent in following him. And so G- Judas goes, and he says, what will you give me? And so he thinks that 30 Pieces of silver is a good price. What's 30 pieces of silver worth? It's like your pop quiz. Like where does 30 pieces of silver show up in the Bible? Well, obviously in Exodus 21, right? Obviously. You guys were all going to beat me there. Exodus 21, 32. If I have an ox and he gores your slave and kills him, what do you think I'll give you? 30 pieces of silver. That's how much your slave is worth. If, that's what Judas is thinking. That's what the high priest is thinking. Like, look, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver. He's going, "Man, price of a slave? That sounds about right. I'll do it." I think it's fair to say Judas didn't see Jesus much more than a slave. Now, just just consider Judas for a moment. We could say so much here. Judas knew his Bible. He literally witnessed the teachings of Jesus. So when when we're in the Gospels and it says the the crowds were in awe of his authority, he taught like, like no one else. Judas was there listening to this kind of teaching. He saw the miracles firsthand. He was an insider, and yet he was very, very far from God. And so I just want to remind us Coming to church, reading your Bible, listening to Christian teaching does not make you a Christian. You can do all those things and leverage them for your own power and your own position. So just cause us always, just just because we read the Bible, just because we're here, that's not what makes us a Christian. The grace of God and believing in his son, Jesus Christ, is why we are Christians. There's two ironies I just want to point out. Number one, What Jesus' enemies plot in private, Jesus proclaimed in public. You get it? Like, what they're plotting in private, he's proclaiming in public. I mean, if you go back, it's just kind of funny. Jesus says, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. He's been saying that since Matthew 16. He's not been quiet. Now, it's weird because everyone's like, what does he mean by this? But he's been saying it. And then we have the Pharisees and the high priests sneaking and plodding, thinking that what they're doing is secretive. This is why Jesus came. Irony number two. The, aim is of the enemies of Jesus think that they're in control when in reality they're only accomplishing what God has already ordained. And we can look at a ton of verses to show that, a ton of passages. But I think verse 5 is, is very helpful here. Or verse 5 where it says, They said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Well, the feast started Thursday night. How long does the feast of Passover last? Pop quiz. The way you, you could count it, seven or eight days. So it's a week out. They don't want to do it now because... There could be an upward. There's a ton of people who have come to Jerusalem, and they all seem to like Jesus. So they don't want to get the crowds upset with him. So we'll just make it through the feast. Crowds will leave. Then we'll kill him. Jesus says, "In two days, I will die." Who's in control? Like never, ever think that the cross is an accident. It was never Plan B or C or D or 25. Went from letters to numbers. It's always been plan A. Jesus came to die on the cross. Jesus says in John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. And he received it from the Father. Listen, we must know, the reason Jesus came is because we are sinful. And he purposely came. And I think these two pictures illustrate The depths of our sin. When the son of man, the one in whom we are made in his image, when he comes to earth and does miraculous works and amazing teaching, raising people from the dead, we are so sinful that all we can do is think about how can we plot his death. And we have to be careful here. Just as we have to do in every single Bible story, it's so easy to go. Yes, that's crazy what they did over there. But who are these religious leaders? Who is Judas supposed to represent? They represent us. Our hearts are no different than what we read here. Paul says we are born in our trespasses, spiritually dead. I mean, I I want you to think about it. Everything we do in life is 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 for our satisfaction, is for our joy. We, we go to work, we make money, all for joy. And just think about the things that make you angry. When you drive your car and someone cuts you off. When someone drives slow in front of you, don't you hate that? At least the speed limit. At least the speed limit. But have you ever noticed that when you cut someone off, you're like, oh, there's an accident, sorry. <laughs> like we should all know that. But you know when they cut you off, they did it on purpose because they hate you. <laughs> I mean, just think just think on what we get angry at. We get cut off. They drive slow. We get angry when we get a negative comment on our Facebook because everyone must like everything I always post. We get angry because our wife doesn't have food on the table and the house isn't perfect. We get angry because our kids don't perfectly obey. We get angry because we... Um, We're not loved and respected the way we want. We get angry because we don't get the raise we want. I mean, we have so many things that we get angry about. And when we get angry, what do we do? We, We fight, we yell, we complain, we vent. Why? Because we want our way. We want what we want. We want our recognition. We want our power. We want our little kingdoms to be recognized by everyone else, which is the very same thing Judas wants. I just want my kingdom recognized. I want my worth to be made known. Same as Caiaphas, same as the elders. They're just saying, look, we got to protect this stuff. We're no different. It's because our hearts are sinful that we deserve death. Romans 6, 20, Romans 323, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. We deserve the cross. We deserve the eternal punishment of hell. That's what we deserve. If we want fair, you ever hear people say we want fair? My sister, she was talking to me the other day, and she goes, The only, the only fair thing there is, is a place you go get cotton candy. <laughs> I was on the phone and I was like, What? Oh There's not a lot of fair things in this world. But if you want fair, what's fair is that we all deserve hell. And hell is not a moment of death. It is everlasting, unending torment of your soul. That's what we deserve, and that's why Jesus came. That's why Good Friday is so good, because we know what we deserve. We know the depths of our sin, the blackness of our sin. And so Jesus comes so that he would go onto the cross, take our sins, bear that punishment. And on the cross, he would absorb the full wrath of God that would take us in eternity in hell. He does on the cross so that we who believe in him could be forgiven and saved. And he would take our heart of stone, that dead, spiritually dead, hostile. He would take that, and he gives you a new heart of flesh that loves God, and that's what we see in verses 6 to 13. So that's what we're going to look at. We're going to go to the the third picture. It's actually the second picture, and here we see a woman enters the scene, and she's going to show us what it looks like to be saved from our sins and to live a life of exuberant worship, for God. She knows who Jesus is, and everything she does displays that. Look at what we see. She enters in. Now, we know this woman is Mary. We learn that in John's account. Same account. Uh, John says, this is Mary, so the, the sister of Lazarus. But interesting, Matthew doesn't tell us that. He tells us who Caiaphas is. He tells us who Judas is. We know the disciples are indignant. We know the house that we're in. But then enters this unknown woman. It's as if he's just highlighting, this, this is a nobody. She's unknown, has no value according to the world. And she enters into this room. So what does she do? She takes this alabaster flask. This is an expensive stone. Looked like marvels imported from Egypt. It is costly, and in Mark's account, she breaks it. She cracks it open. I would love to know, like, what? She's like, what would that look like? She breaks it open, and she just pours it over the head of Jesus. And he's reclining at the table. So remember, they don't have chairs, so he's laying there next to the table. And so it's just pouring down his head onto his robe. You walk into the room, and she's going to be filled with that smell of incense everywhere. Automatically, you're going, whoa, somebody spilled the oil in here. It's just everywhere. You cannot miss this. Now, typical first century hospitality, if you were to come into my house, I would take a little bit of oil and put it on you as a means of honoring you. But this is not a little means of honoring. This is not typical hospitality. This is extravagant, exuberant worship, what she was doing. She's cracked open the whole bottle. She's poured it on him. The place completely is filled with this oil. It's exuberant worship. Mark tells us it was 300 denarii. So it automatically, we got to go, well, what's 300 denarii worth? A year's wages. What'd you make last year? Just think about, what did you make last year? You Got the number? You figured out? Like, what did you make? What did your family make? And she just says, I give it all to Jesus. Just all that she just. Pours out right in front of him. Would you do that? Everything you made, just pour it out before Jesus. I just love you. This is exuberant worship. So now we come to our definition of exuberant. Dictionary defines it extremely joyful, it means overflowing and effusively enthusiastic. Pretty good word to define what's happening here. Now, and we got to think of the contrast here. We got the religious leaders, we have Judas, they're fighting for power, they're fighting for position. To them, Jesus is a threat. To them, Jesus is a nuisance. To them, Jesus is of no more value than a slave. But to this woman, Jesus is everything. Judas is saying, 30 30 shekels, 30 pieces of silver, that's a good price. That's what I'll take. And she's saying, I'll give you my whole year's salary and everything that I have. Jesus is more valuable than her most costly possession. And then in the midst of this act of just exuberant worship, the disciples respond. They're indignant. They're upset. Probably instigated by Judas, I'm guessing. But notice what happens next. Number one, Jesus defends her. Why do you trouble the woman? Like, that's got to make you pause when Jesus rebukes you. Second, he commends her. She's done a beautiful thing for me. Now, wait a minute. Sinful people are hostile to God. We don't please God. We cannot submit to God. We do not love God. He commends her. Do you see who she is then? She knows who he is. She believes in him. She's a child of God. She is honoring Jesus. Third, he explains her action. You always have the poor. You can always give to the poor. He's not saying don't give, but he's like, you can always do that. But you will not always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Burial. This woman seems to be the only one who's listened to Jesus. She seems to be the only one who knows who Jesus is. She seems to be the only one to know what his mission actually is, that he came to die on a cross. I mean, really, what should the disciples have been doing at this moment? Why didn't you get the oil? We should have got the oil. What were we thinking? Why did we let her get the oil? We all should have grabbed the oil. But rather, they were indignant. Fourth. And this is amazing. He rewards her. Look at verse 13 again. Truly I say to you, where this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So the gospel is going global. Every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every language, Revelation 7 proves that. And he says, wherever this goes, they will hear of this woman and this act of worship. And just get this, right now, that promise has come true also. Do you realize that? That promise that Jesus gave 2,000 years ago has come true right now in the preaching of this word. And every time the gospel is preached, Jesus' authority is affirmed. Our story is never forgotten. She will never be forgotten. The woman is a testimony of the power of the gospel, of what Jesus has done for us at the cross. The woman is a picture of the joy that we have when our sins are washed clean. She's a picture of what it is to be freed from sin. She's a picture of what it is to be saved from her sin and to live a life of exuberant worship. Her story will never cease to be told because Jesus promises he will never, ever forget her. Isn't that incredible? There's another irony here. Those who seek and hunger after honor will ultimately lose it. But if you give everything to follow Jesus, you'll be honored for all of eternity. Judas will betray Jesus and then hang himself shortly afterwards. But if like this woman, we believe in Jesus then our names are written on the hand of God. Jesus promises to intercede for you and me every single day and to give you grace. He promises that he will know you, that he loves you, that you will never cease to experience his blessing and his joy. And all that's possible because of the cross. Now we know a sad truth as we come from dust and we will return to dust. And within a generation, very likely, not any of our names will be mentioned again, at least not much. But Jesus here, he testifies that those who come to him, he will always know. He will always rejoice in. He will always satisfy. And they will dwell with him in perfect, everlasting joy. And how is it that we show the world this joy that we have, that Jesus has satisfied our hearts? How is it that we show the world the joy that we have eternal life? How is it that we show the world the peace and the comfort that we've received from Jesus? It's by living a life of exuberant worship, by giving it all to Jesus and saying, Jesus, you are everything. You gave everything so I can have everything, so I give everything to you because in you, We have everything. It's a picture of what Jesus has saved us from and what Jesus has saved us for. And so I pray you know that truth. I pray that if you are here, then you know the gospel. And if you are here and you have not yet believed in the gospel, if you're here and you've just been been checking Christianity out, I hope you hear this is why every single person needs to believe in Jesus because he's the only son of God. He's the only means in which God has given under heaven in which we can be saved. There is no other name which we can call upon which brings about forgiveness of sins. There is no other blood that washes our sins away. There is no one else who has toned for your sins, absorbed your wrath, so by believing in him, he would take your sin and give you his righteousness. No other name. And he promises, not only will you have forgiveness of sins, but he will fully satisfy you, fill you with joy for all of eternity. There is nothing you can turn to in this world that compare with the joy of Christ. Nothing. And the proof of that is Sunday. Isn't that good news? Because you go, is it true? Is he really who he said he is? And then comes Sunday. The tomb is empty, he's risen from the grave, ascended into heaven at the right hand of God, where he intercedes for every single saint who believes in him. So let's pray. Uh, And actually what I want to do is I want to give you a moment. And I just want to encourage you, just, just take a few moments and pray. Spend this time praising God, thanking him that he saved you. Thank him that he knows exactly how sinful you are. And that because of that, he sent his son Jesus to die for you. Take this time if you've not yet believed in Jesus. Confess your sins and believe in him now. Ask him for his forgiveness and that he would be your Lord and Savior. And then what I'll do is I'll close in a few moments and the team is going to come back up. And they'll lead us in a song of closing. Father, we just praise you. We are so incredibly undeserving. We we're born sinful. We we're born rejecting you. We we're born despising you. We cannot submit to you, and we have no desire to. The Bible says we are your enemy. We want to dethrone you with every fiber of our being. And your response to all of that is to send your son Jesus so that by the grace of your son's death, we who believe in you could be forgiven. You would make us new. You would give us new hearts. Hearts that desire you, hearts that worship you, hearts that love you, hearts that proclaim you, hearts that please you, hearts that want to live in exuberant worship of you. Lord, I pray that we are reminded today of just the depths of our sin and the wonder and the beauty of the grace of your son, Jesus. And I pray that we are encouraged by the picture of worship that we also would live a life of exuberant worship because of what you have done for us. There is no other response to rightly understanding your son, Jesus. Most Lord, we just praise you. We thank you for Friday. We thank you for Good Friday. It is so good. That first Friday was dark. They didn't know what was going to happen, but we do. We know Sunday comes. We know Sunday comes, and you rise, and you're victorious. Sin has been defeated. Death has been defeated. Satan has been defeated, and because of our faith in you, we are justified, sanctified, glorified. God, we praise you. We just praise you. So, Lord, I pray tonight as we close, as we sing songs, as we pray, Lord, may our fellowship be sweet afterwards, and may we just encourage one another in the gospel. May we rejoice together that by your blood we are saved and made family, that we would live forever with you. In your name, Jesus, amen.